We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hi. How's it going? It's going. It is. It's a very rainy, semi-dreary day. It's very fall. Mm-hmm. Not the best for a Monday, you know? No. <laughs> It is what it is. I know, 3 o'clock rolled around and I was like, this is a good time for a nap. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, but you're working. (laughs) But you have a job. I have to do my job. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the last of our Spooktember episodes. Mm -hmm. So I thought we'd go out with a little bit of a bang. Let's do it. So this week, we are going to be discussing... The Grandbriar Ghost. Ooh, okay. Mm-hmm. Information was pulled from the following sources. A 2022 All That's Interesting article by Eric Hawkins. 2022 West Virginia Explorer article by David Sabray. 2018 Appalachian History article by David Tabler. 2018 Only in Your State article by Robin Jarvia. 2014 Mental Floss article by Matt Soniak. American Hauntings, Dusty Old Thing article by Chris Foster, Dusty Old Thing, the Grandbriar Valley, West Virginia website, Find a Grave, The Witchery Arts, We Relate, and Wikipedia. All right. And links to all of these articles will be included in the show notes. So I'm just going to do a blanket trigger warning at the top. Oh, no. Yeah. It's nothing like gory, but there will be brief mentions of domestic violence in this story. Okay. So just be aware of that. As with last week's story, this one also centers around a young woman. Elva Zana Heaster was the daughter of Jacob Hedges Heaster and Mary Jane Robinson Heaster. We don't have a specific date for her birth, but according to We Relate, she was likely born in Richland, West Virginia, around 1876 in Grandbriar County. Mm -hmm. Half of my sources stated that she was born in 1873. Okay. But I'm going to go off the date that is listed on her tombstone, which is 1876. Fair. 73 may be right, but I'm going to go off the one that is literally etched in stone. Right. A little more concrete, but I'm fine. Yes. Yes. (laughs) In one census from 1880, it listed her as having three other siblings, Alfred, who was a year older, John, who was a year younger, and Louis, who was around four years younger than her, making her the second eldest and the only girl. Not much, if anything, is known about her life until she was in her early 20s. It's said that Elva, who went by her middle name of Zana, had a child out of wedlock in 1895 with a man named George Waldridge. George didn't have money or a job and claimed he wasn't even sure it was his. Great. 
Awesome. Mm-hmm. As a result, he was able to avoid responsibility and a shotgun wedding. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's unclear what became of the baby, as no further information about it can be found. Scary. And I actually read a little snippet in an article, of which I could not tell you which one it was, <laughs> that Ancestry.com is offering people a free membership if they can figure out what happened to this baby. Really? Yeah. Jeez. Which I thought was pretty nuts. It is nuts. So now I want to find out what happened to this baby, but I, <laughs> I won't be able to. Go on Nicolas Cage on that baby. <laughs> Pretend the baby is the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> Although you know where that is. Try to find this baby. Try to find the baby. Not long after this, she went to visit her cousins in Falling Spring, where she met a drifter by the name of Erasmus Stribling Edward Shue. Ooh, wow, what a name. Mm-hmm. Edward worked as a blacksmith in the shop of James Crookshanks, who was not a cat, <laughs> and was over 10 years her senior at the age of 35. Oh. Edward was born in 1861 in Mossy Creek, Augusta County, Virginia, and grew up in Droop Mountain, West Virginia. His father was Jacob Shue, who was a well-respected blacksmith. Nice. So kind of taking over what dad's work. Mm -hmm. The pair met in October of 1896, which would have put Zana anywhere between 20 to 23 years old. And after a whirlwind romance, they were married in November at the Old Methodist Church in Livesay's Mill. Nice. That's a month later. Yeah, that's insane. Whirlwind is like more like a tornado. After the wedding, they took up residence in a small two-story frame building in Lewisburg, West Virginia. It's impossible to know what life was like in the shoe household, although <laughs> by all accounts, they appeared to be madly in love. I would hope so, with a tornado wedding. <laughs> that is, until January 23rd, 1897. Uh -oh. Not even three months later. No. That afternoon, Edward sent a neighbor boy, 11-year-old Anderson Andy Jones, to his house to ask Zana if she needed anything from the market. The boy proceeded to the shoe home, and upon entering their log house, he found Edward's young wife lying at the foot of the stairs. Oh, no. Her body lay straight with her legs together. One arm lay at her side while the other rested across her chest. Her head was also tilted to one side, her eyes wide open and lifeless. Oh, it's just what you want to see when you get home. When you're 11? Mm-hmm. An article published in the 1910 edition of the New York Sunday American included an interview with Anderson. Quote, only one witness to events following the discovery of Mrs. Shue's body and later the sensational trial is still living. He is Anderson Jones, a respected Negro, their language, not mine, mm -hmm. living at Lewisburg. Jones can vividly recall the startling events. His recitation of the fantastic mystery is given ample corroboration by court records. Early on the morning of January 22nd, which the date is wrong, but. Okay. <laughs> Edward appeared at the cabin of Aunt Martha Jones, mother of Anderson, 
to ask if the boy could go to his house and attend some chores for Mrs. Shu. Mm -hmm. Shaking his graying head, Jones clearly recalled that memorable day. He said, quote, I can remember it well. It was a Saturday. Mammy told Mr. Shu I had to go to Dr. Knapp's first and finish some work there. He seemed to resent this, but asked if I would go later in the day. Four times he came back to the house for me. Each time I was busy. About 1 p.m. he came again, and I agreed to run his errand. Going to the house, I felt that something was wrong. All the doors were closed, and there was an air about the place I did not like. Reaching the steps, I saw a trail of blood. That scared me, but I went to the door and knocked. No one answered. I tried it and, finding the door unlocked, walked into the kitchen. The trail of blood continued across the floor to the dining room. This door, too, was closed. Once more, I knocked and, getting no answer, walked in. I stumbled over Mrs. Shu's body. There she was, stretched out on the floor, looking right up at me through wide open eyes. She seemed to be laughing. I was frightened, but still able to reach down and shake her. She was stiff and cold. Running from the house, I called across the field to Aunt Martha. Mrs. Shu is dead. End quote. She looked like she was laughing? That's creepy. Ah, I don't like that. I don't either. Mm -mm. Aunt Martha quickly summoned the local doctor and coroner, George W. Knapp. Anderson stated that she also went to the house to check on Zana as well. Dr. Knapp took almost an hour to arrive at the shoe home, and by the time he did, the scene had already been disturbed. Edward had come home and her body had been moved to the bed in their bedroom. Not only that, but her body had been washed and dressed. Oh, God. In many tellings of this legend, it states that he had her dressed for burial in a high-necked dress with a stiff collar, face hidden beneath a veil. But we need to remember, Aunt Martha was there, so Mm -hmm. she and other women had likely helped to clean and dress Zana prior to the doctor arriving. Mm -hmm. As the doctor went about examining Zana, Edward cradled his wife's head the whole time and cried. When Dr. Knapp attempted to check out the back of her neck and head, Edward became extremely agitated, and the doctor left to avoid enraging him further. Suspicious. Mm-hmm. It was after the doctor left that Aunt Martha and other ladies dressed her for burial in the high-necked dress, which was actually her burgundy wedding dress, and also the nicest dress she owned. Matches blood. <laughs> right. In his report, Dr. Knapp noted that he found nothing amiss on the parts of her body that he was able to examine. Mm-hmm. Since the start of the new year, he had been treating her for quote-unquote female issues, and on her death certificate, he listed her cause of death as quote, everlasting faint, end quote, which is an outdated term meaning heart attack. I was just going to say, that sounds like a heart attack. Before it was later changed to quote, complications from pregnancy, end quote. Oh, no. There was no evidence that Zana was pregnant, Okay, but we can't rule out a possible miscarriage. Zana was 21 to 24 years old at the time of her death, which was listed as January 24th, 1897. The following day, riders were sent to notify Zana's parents of her passing. Her body was transported to her childhood home in Little Sewell Mountain, where a truly bizarre wake was held. Throughout the viewing, Edward behaved erratically, pacing by the casket, fiddling with Zana's head and neck. 
In fact, he had even assisted in preparing her body for burial by placing her in the casket and was the only one to handle her head. Uh, I don't like that. He also covered her head and neck with a scarf that didn't match her funeral dress, which was rather odd. Edward insisted that it was her favorite scarf and that she would have wanted to be buried in it. Mm -hmm. He also made a point of propping her head up with a pillow before swapping the pillow out for some rolled up cloth on either side of her head in the coffin to, quote, make her rest easier, end quote. Gross. Zana was buried in her hometown in a little family graveyard on January 25th, 1879. Her obituary ran in the January 28th edition of the Grand Briar Independent as follows, quote, Mrs. E.Z. Shue, wife of E.S. Shue, died at her home in the Richlands, this county, on Sunday last, the 24th, aged 22 years. Mrs. Shue was a daughter of Mr. Hedges Heaster, of Meadow Bluff District, Mr. Shu formerly lived in Pocahontas County, end quote. Edward was well-liked in town, and no one would have suspected him of having anything to do with his young wife's death. They just chalked his odd behavior at the wake up to grief. Yeah. Which, I mean, people grieve Could differently. Could be so, yeah. Well, not everyone. Mm. Zana's mother, Mary Jane Heaster, knew in her gut that Edward had something to do with her daughter's death. Mm-hmm. She had never liked him and was convinced that he had murdered Zana, although there was no evidence to back up that claim. Mm. Mary turned to prayer for answers and prayed that her daughter would be able to come back somehow to reveal the truth of what had really happened to her. Every night for weeks, Mary said the same prayer. Every night, that is, until it was finally answered. Ooh. For four consecutive nights, about a month after her death, Zana visited her mother. She shared with her that Edward had been abusive and cruel, and flew into a rage when he thought she hadn't included any meat with his dinner. In his anger, he had broken her neck, twisting it until it snapped. Zana even turned her head all the way around to show the extent of the damage to her mother. Other strange occurrences had taken place during this time. Mary had washed a white sheet that had been in Zana's coffin, which she had attempted to give back to Edward, who refused to take it. It held a strange odor, and the water in the basin turned red. Okay. The sheet turned pink before the red liquid in the basin once again returned to normal, and no matter how many times Mary washed it, the pink stain could not be removed. Yeah, that's not suspicious. In the 1910 article published in an edition of the New York Sunday American, quote, several days after the funeral, Mrs. Heaster was awakened from her slumber by a noise in the little cabin room. Startled, she recalled constant prayers since her daughter's death, seeking the real solution to it. Maybe they were about to be answered. Peering through the darkened room, Mrs. Heaster made out an object. It was her daughter, dressed in the very dress she had died in. The young girl seemed about to speak, but when her mother reached out her hand, seeking the coffin, the girl disappeared. She thought that when a ghost appeared, they'd be in their coffin. Just to clarify that statement. Okay. I don't know why she thought that, Weird. but that's okay. what she thought. Hmm. The next night, Mrs. Heaster resumed her prayers, praying long and earnestly that her daughter would return to explain her death. Once more, they were answered. Mrs. Shue talked more freely, 
giving her mother to understanding she should be acquainted with the whole mysterious affair. A third visit was followed by a fourth, before the murdered woman told her mother the entire circumstances surrounding her death. End quote. Following these vivid encounters, Mary, along with her brother-in-law, Jonathan Heaster, met with John Alfred Preston, the local Lewisburg prosecutor. She spent an entire afternoon begging him to reopen the case, telling him the visions she'd received from her daughter. It's unclear if he believed her story about ghostly evidence from beyond the grave, mm -hmm. but Mary's testimony was convincing enough that John agreed to start asking questions around town. It was as John started talking to people that he was informed about Edward's strange behavior at Zana's funeral, and Dr. Knapp admitted that he had been unable to perform a complete post-mortem examination, although he had seen bruises on her neck above the high collar of her dress. Oh, just left that out? Yeah. Interesting. This was enough evidence for John to request a court order for a complete autopsy, and despite Edward's objections... Zana's body was exhumed a few days later on February 22, 1897. The Grenbrier Independent noted that Edward complained about having to attend the inquest into his wife's death. Oh, what a... When told that he would be forced to attend if he didn't go willingly, he replied, quote, I don't know what in the name of God they are taking her up for. They are not going to find anything, end quote. Bold. And that he would be arrested, but, quote, they will not be able to prove I did it, end quote. Weird thing to say. Mm -hmm. Dr. Knapp and two other doctors performed the autopsy in the Nickel One Room schoolhouse before a jury of five men. And according to the Pocahontas Times, quote, on the throat were the marks of fingers indicating that she had been choking, that the neck was dislocated between the first and second vertebra. The ligaments were torn and ruptured. The windpipe had been crushed at a point in front of the neck, end quote. Yeah, that's not uh, natural death. No. Dying by fingerprints and crushed pipe, windpipe. Yeah. No. Anderson Jones, who had been present at the autopsy, recalled the discovery. Mm. Quote, suddenly the doctor turned to Mr. Preston. They whispered together for a few minutes. Then Mr. Preston turned to Shu and said, Well, Shu, we have found your wife's neck to be broken. Shu's head dropped. A change came over him that I can't explain, but it certainly proved his guilt to me. End quote. Weird. Mm -hmm. It wasn't me. They're not going to find anything. Her neck snapped. Yeah, it was me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what <right>. the hell? <laughs> the evidence showed without a doubt that Zana's death had been anything but natural. Edward was placed under arrest, and Sheriff Hill Nickel accompanied him back to Lewisburg, where he was placed in the county jail without bail, awaiting trial for the first-degree murder of his wife. And how long was this after? Was it super... Exhumation? It was like the a trial. month later. Yeah. Oh, the trial isn't going to start until June. Okay. So it's going to be a little while. Mm. Meanwhile... <laughs> John started to do some digging into Edward's past and learned that this wasn't his first marriage. Oh, no. In fact, it was his third. No, oh, no. His first marriage in 1885 to Ali Esteline Cutlip had ended in divorce. His wife, who was 18 while he was 24 at the time they were married, 
mm-hmm. testified to police that he had been extremely violent and gave her regular beatings during their marriage. Cute. The pair had a daughter in 1887 named Gertrude Lucretia Shue, and after separating in 1888, they later divorced in 1889. Gertrude was raised by Ellen's parents before she and her new husband, Tinker McMillan, who she married in 1896, would raise her along with the six children the pair would go on to have together. That's a lot of kids. (laughs) That is a lot of kids. Oh my god. They lived in a farming community, so I'm sure that was part of it. Yeah, is the norm. Yeah. But yeah, that's a lot of kids. Edward spent two years in prison in between his marriages for stealing a horse. (laughs) Weird. All right. His second marriage in 1894 to Lucy Ann Tritt, who was 23 and he was 33, ended within eight months after her mysterious death on February 11th, 1895. He really likes to murder them young, doesn't he? Apparently. Mm-hmm. Stories on how she died varied. One story is that she fell on the ice while pregnant. Another that she was hit on the head by a brick that Edward accidentally dropped while repairing the chimney in their home. Oh, you know, accidental bricks. We've all been there. Yep. Gotta watch out for him. Yep. And a third was that she'd been poisoned by Edward. Is that an accident too? You know, accidental poisonings happen all the time too. It happens all the time. Yep. While once again in prison, so after he'd been arrested for Zana's death, He boasted that he planned to marry a total of seven women during his life. And although the mysterious death of his previous wife and his history of assault were circumstantial, it was enough evidence to warrant a trial. Awesome. Edward's trial started on June 30th, 1897 at Granbriar County Circuit Court and was overseen by Judge J.M. McWhorter. Mary was the prosecution's star witness, although John and his assistant, Henry Gilmer, wanted to minimize the use of her daughter's ghostly visitations as evidence, as it was inadmissible. Okay. The first witness was Dr. Knapp, who shared the nature of Zana's injuries following her exhumation and complete autopsy, Mm -hmm. and noted that the break in her neck was such that it was inconsistent with a break that would come from a suicide attempt or a break that could have happened after death prior to burial. Okay. So he's just... Covering his bases. Yeah, like this isn't something that happened post-mortem, and this Mm -hmm. isn't something where she would have been able to do it to herself. Yeah. Anderson Jones was also called in to testify about what he witnessed upon entering the shoe home. Can you imagine having to do that at 11? No. No. That would have been awful. I mean, just like as if the event itself wasn't enough. Now you have to go to trial. And answer a bunch of questions about it, yeah. Yup. Several other members of Sewell and Lewisburg were called to testify before the woman of the hour was brought in, Mary, who at this time was around 50 years old. The defense, led by Dr. William Rucker and James P.D. Gardner, hoped to prove that Mary was an unreliable witness and questioned her almost exclusively about Zana's ghostly visitations. Mary refused to buckle or waver under his intense badgering and maintained that the stories she had been told were true. Fun fact, James P.D. Gardner was an African-American attorney and the first African-American to ever practice law in the Grand Briar County Circuit Court. Hell yeah. 
badass. Which I thought was pretty cool. Really awesome. Now I'm going to share part of the court testimony from Mary detailing what her dreams, what her encounters with Zana entailed. Okay. So I'm going to do like the prosecutor's name and then what he said and then her name and and what she said. Okay. Rucker. Mrs. Heaster. Did you not have a dream that aroused your suspicions to lead you to have the body exhumed? Heaster, I had no dream, for I was as fully awake as I am this moment. Rucker, and did you not have a dream or vision that led you to have the body disinterred? Heaster, well, I was not satisfied that my daughter came to her death from natural causes, so I prayed that it might be revealed to me how she died. Mm -hmm. After about an hour spent in prayer, I turned over and there stood my daughter. I put my hand out to feel the coffin, but it was not there. She seemed to hesitate to speak to me, then departed. The next night, after I prayed again, the manner of her death might be shown. She appeared and talked more freely, giving me to understand that I should be acquainted with the whole matter. The third night, she appeared again and disclosed more to me. And on the fourth night, she returned and told me all about the difficulty, how it occurred, and how it was brought about. Zana Heaster told me, quote, He came that night from the shop and seemed angry. I told him supper was ready, and he began to chide me because I had prepared no meat. Mm-hmm. I replied there was plenty, bread and butter, applesauce, preserves, and other things that made a good supper. He flew into a rage, got up, and came toward me. When I raised up, he seized each side of my head with his hands, and by a sudden wrench, dislocated my neck end quote so hopefully it was quick for her then hoping yeah mary continued then my daughter went on to describe the home where she lived and surroundings in the neighborhood so that it was fixed in my mind as a reality when i later described it for people living near there they told me they could not have been more accurate themselves and she told me i could look back of aunt martha jones's in the meadow in a rocky place that I could look in the cellar behind a loose plank and see. Her house was a square log house, hewed right up to the square, and she said for me to look at the right-hand side of the door as you go in, and in the right-hand corner. I saw the place exactly as she told me, and I saw blood there as she told me. Rucker, do you think you actually saw your daughter in flesh and blood? Heaster, yes, sir, I do. I told them the very dress she was wearing when she was murdered. When she was about to leave the room, she turned her head completely around and looked at me like she wanted me to know all about it. And the next time she returned, she told me all about it. The first time she came, she seemed as if she did not want to tell me as much as afterward. The last night she came, she told me she had done everything she could, and I am satisfied she did all that too. Rucker. When she came, did you touch her? Heaster. Yes, sir. I got up on my elbows and reached out a little further as I wanted to see if people came in their coffins. I leaned up and made a light. I wanted to see if there was a coffin, but there was not. She was just like she was when she left this world. It was just after I had gone to bed. I wanted her to come and talk to me, and she did. This was before the inquest, and I told my neighbors. They said she was exactly as I told them she was. Rucker. Had you ever seen the premises where your daughter lived before these visits? Heaster. No, sir, I had not. But I found them exactly as she told me they were, and never laid eyes on after her death. She told me all of this before I knew anything about the building at all. Rucker. 
How long was it after you had those interviews with your daughter until you did see the buildings? Keister, it must have been a month or more after the examination. Many of the people in the community believed Mary's testimony, and Edward didn't do himself any favors when he took the stand on the sixth day of his trial. As it was noted in the July 1st, 1897 edition of the Grandbriar Independent, quote, Shu was on the stand all Tuesday afternoon. He was given free reign and talked at great length, was very minute and particular in describing unimportant incidents, denied pretty much everything said by other witnesses, said the prosecution was all spite work, entered a positive denial of the charge against him, vehemently protested his innocence, calling God to witness, admitted that he had served a term in the pen, declared that he dearly loved his wife, Mm -hmm. and appealed to the jury to look into his face and then say if he was guilty. His testimony, manner, etc. made an unfavorable impression on the spectators. End quote. Me too. Sounds like an asshole. Yeah. It only took the jury an hour and ten minutes to come back with a guilty verdict following his eight-day trial. Ten of the twelve jurors voted for the death penalty via hanging, but because it wasn't a unanimous vote, Erasmus Stribling Edward Shue was instead found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Fine. Not long after his trial, a lynching attempt was made on July 11th. (laughs) But a man named George M. Hara alerted Deputy Sheriff Dwyer about the plot, so Dwyer was able to hide Edward in the woods before the mob of 15 to 30 men arrived at the jail where he was being held. Dang. Sheriff Newell was able to confront the mob and persuade them to disperse and go home, but four of them would later be indicted for attempted lynching. Bummer. (laughs) I get it, but like... I read somewhere that they had even bought a new rope for the occasion. (laughs) Jesus. And I was like, damn. This rope's for you, son. I put your name on it. Mm -hmm. On July 13th, 1897, Edward was taken by train to the West Virginia State Penitentiary in Moundsville. No. Full circle. Full circle. (laughs) Where he died March 13th, 1900 from complications with measles and pneumonia at the age of 39. Good. It is likely he was buried in the nearby Tom's Run Cemetery which is where unclaimed prisoners were commonly buried. Cemetery records didn't start being kept until the 1930s, so there is no way to know for sure, but it's more than likely that that's where he was put in an unmarked grave because his family refused to claim his remains. Mary lived until September of 1916, when she passed away at the age of 67. For the rest of her life following the trial, she never recanted her story of being visited by her deceased daughter. Today, you can find a historical marker in Grandbriar County, West Virginia, on Route 60 that commemorates Zana's death and the unorthodox trial that followed. The marker reads as follows, quote, Grandbriar Ghost. Interred in nearby cemetery is Zana Heaster Shoe. Her death in 1897 was presumed natural until her spirit appeared to her mother to describe how she was killed by her husband, Edward. Autopsy on the exhumed body verified the apparition's account. Edward, found guilty of murder, was sentenced to the state prison. Only known case in which testimony from ghost helped convict a murderer. End quote. Crazy. Still to this day? But that isn't true. I was just going to say. If you'll remember, the Red Barn murder 
of Marie Martin also included spectral testimony and took place in 1828. That was in the UK. If you're unsure what I'm talking about, I encourage you to go back and listen to episode 15 about that case. Mm -hmm. But regardless, the case of the Grandbriar ghost is the only trial since the Salem witch trials in 1692 in which spectral evidence was admitted and helped put away a murderer. Dang. Today, Zana is buried at Soul Chapel Methodist Cemetery in Meadow Bluff, West Virginia. And that is the story of the Grandbriar ghost. Sad. Mm-hmm. But kind of cool. Mm-hmm. She solved her own murder. Mm-hmm. I know. <laughs> That's what I thought was cool. I don't know what the things were that she was trying to tell her mother to look for, like behind the rocks. Yeah. Maybe he tried to bury something, like a bloody rag or... Yeah, I don't know. But I do know the bloodstains that she mentioned, they were behind the door that led to the kitchen, I think. Because that's the door that Andy went through, that Anderson went through Mm -hmm. before he stumbled over her body. And I think (laughs) there was blood in the corner of the room that hadn't been cleaned up. Cleaned up. And so she was was pointing out where the blood was to kind of verify what had happened. Yeah. Looking for more content? You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. If you'd like to see pictures from this week's episode, not to mention bonus content and funny memes, make sure to follow us on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Facebook and Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. On TikTok? Of course you are. Follow us at yieldcrimepodcast. Are you into the secret histories of exorcisms, Christmas massacres, killdozers, and concert disasters? How about haunted mansions, the Philadelphia Experiment, the Dorm of Death, or candy corn? Then you're going to love Ghost Town, a hilarious and sometimes not so hilarious twice-weekly podcast. On Wednesdays, we discuss the secret history of an abandoned, unexplored, haunted, or mysterious place from anywhere in the world. And on Fridays, we cover an amazing historical failure from any time in history. Ghost Town is 100% safe and legal. We guarantee it. It's also fun, spooky, and can contain a riot, a massacre, a murder, or an arch deluxe. I'm Rebecca Lieb. I'm Jason Horton. And And this this is Ghost Town. Town. And you can find Ghost Town wherever you listen to podcasts. Got something you want to say? Shoot us an email over at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your story ideas, see any gifts you send our way, or if you just want to say hello. We're pretty friendly. Speaking of friendly, if you'd like to have real-time conversations with us, consider joining our Discord over at the Cultivate Network. You can chat with us over at the Old Crimers Cubby, or catch up with any of the other great creators that are part of the Cultivate family of podcasts. Just click the link in our show notes, or over on our link tree to get started today. This week's podcast plug is Ghost Town. Jason Horton and Rebecca Lieb discuss and explore some of the most mysterious and interesting events in history. Take a trip to haunted hotels, abandoned malls, deserted amusement parks, paranormal experiences, infamous true crimes, and weird historical and cultural events. Nice. We will have a link to their show in the show notes. All right. What's something good you'd like to share? I went on a really nice walk with Willie today. Chief went to work with my partner and Willie and I had a nice little walk at a local park and he got all his sniffs in and I got some fresh air and we were able to be successful in our walk before it got rainy so 
Mm-hmm. It was very nice. Nice. How about you? Spent yesterday, part of the day yesterday, in Stillwater. We went for a ride on the trail, which was really beautiful because, you know, the leaves had turned and the foliage. <laughs> the fall foliage. <laughs> One thing that I was not expecting on the trail was apparently this time of year, like, baby snakes try to find places to, like, brewmate for the winter. Oh, God. So there were, like, a bunch of dead baby garter snakes all over the trail. Oh, God. And someone had, like, gone through with chalk and been, like, warning, snake crossing. And then they had circled all the dead baby snakes that were on the trail. That's really dark. Oh, my God. I was like, what kind of psychopath did this? Seriously. So it wasn't on the entire trail, but it was on parts that were, like, heavily wooded. Mm-hmm. So it was a decent chunk, but I was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus. I didn't know they did that in the fall. Like, that they no. go and find places to, like, bury themselves. Or I don't know what snakes do in the winter. Yeah. I don't know either. I don't think I want to know. <laughs> I don't want to know either. I'm just glad they're all garter snakes. You do you, and I will look at the leaves instead. <laughs> yeah. Dear snakes, no thanks. I was more focused at being like, oh, look at how pretty these leaves are. And then I would glance down, and I'm like, where are all these chalk circles on the ground? And then I read the little chalk message and was like, this got real dark real fast. <laughs> Seriously. I was not expecting this today. But yes, I got out to enjoy the nice weather, the unseasonably nice weather over the weekend nice you ready to shut her down i am if you want a playlist of all our episodes on youtube click the link in our show notes or in our link tree and subscribe today for not only a list of our full catalog but a separate list as well just of our can you crack the cramp word segments a great way to support the show if you want to help out but you can't do so financially is to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, or wherever you can leave a review. This week's comes from Podchaser, and it's from the BHH cast, who we guested on their show. Mm-hmm. And it says, five stars. Funny. So damn funny. Probably <laughs> can't curse in a review. If we could, we would say they are so effing funny. Lindsay and Madison are great. Can we curse in a review? We'll never know. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks, fellas. It was really fun talking to you guys. It really was. If you're interested in ad-free content, consider supporting us with a one-time donation either over on Buy Me a Coffee or our Venmo page, both of which are in our link tree and in the show notes. If you'd like early ad-free content, not to mention some bonus material, become a member of our Patreon today for as low as a dollar a month. I don't even know why I preface it anymore at this point, but I don't know when the next Tea Public sale is. <laughs> it's at some point, and whenever it is, I will note it on social media. So if there you're you interested to know when you can get a deal on our merch, tune into our social media channels. Awesome. And then you will know. You'll know all the things. All the things. And don't forget about our calendar special that was mentioned at the top. Mm-hmm. Go to podcastcalendars.com. Promo code OLDCRIMERS, old with an E. You can get $5 off, and if you pre-order before November 30th, you get an additional 10% off. 
Nice. So you can get a bunch of money off of it if you combine the two, which you can. So nice. Go do that. Do it. And you support us mm-hmm. by doing it. Bonus. Bonus. <laughs> On that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale. There's all this crime.